welcome to the Cambridge Plus Careers Takeoff series. World events have prompted me to take a different approach to this episode. We're recording this on the 2nd of March, 2022. It's been a week since Russian state forces launched an unprovoked invasion into Ukraine. Lives have been lost, hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced, and there's every likelihood of more suffering. Governments, companies, and individuals have responded in their own ways to this invasion. To help us talk about this, we have Andrei Kirilenko, a faculty member here at CJBS who is from Ukraine. Andrei, welcome. Thank you very much, Conrad. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us during this very difficult period. Can you tell us about your links with Ukraine, where you grew up, and uh, your career since since leaving Ukraine? I was uh, born in Ukraine, in southeastern Ukraine, in uh, Mariupol. It's a city that's now being uh, increasingly surrounded by the Russian forces. Uh, I lived in Ukraine until I was about 16 years old. Then I went to college in Moscow to study economics. And after that, I had an opportunity. I actually spent two years in the um, in the military, in the, in the Soviet military, uh, in the airborne. And uh, then I had an opportunity. It was the, um, was the opening up of the Soviet Union in the eight, late 80s to, uh, to go and study finance in the U.S. I studied economics and finance at Wharton. And what I wanted to study was the question that occurred to me when I was relatively young. I was maybe 12, 13 years old. I started asking myself a question. How is it that countries with financial markets do so much better than countries without them? Because financial markets are human-made constructs. They're not rivers. They're not soil. They're not mountains. They're not geography, they're not character, they're not natural resources, Um, so they could be copied. Why can't you copy something like that? Humans are good at copying. They copy cars, they copy roads, they copy food, so why can't they copy financial markets? And that took me on a journey that's continuing. So first I studied economics, then I studied finance, then I realized that I'm not really actually closer to the question, to the answers to the question that I have. And so I thought that's maybe I'm asking the question wrong. Maybe I shouldn't be asking that question. I should be asking the question, when do financial markets not work? And so I joined the International Monetary Fund of the PhD program and spent 12 years there around the world working on financial crisis, understanding looking at sort of the debris of the financial market stopped working. In 2008, I joined the U.S. government. The markets, federal markets regulator called Commodity Futures Trading Commission because of the global financial crisis. And uh, then my academic colleagues reached out to me and said, look, you know, you've learned a lot. You need to come back. You need to write papers. You need to teach students. You need to start centers because... The knowledge that you have and the perspective that you have is something that we need in uh, 
in, in academic finance. So it stays in the DNA of the profession. So it's not forgotten and we could build on that. So I joined MIT Sloan then I joined Imperial and I've been at Cambridge now for a while actually trying to combine all this knowledge that I've learned about technology that's changing markets and uh, regulation that's changing markets and what finance is about into, uh, uh, in, into courses and, and into trying to explain to, uh, to my colleagues, to my peers, and to the students how I think about these things. So, Andre, do you still have a family in Ukraine? Yes, my mother currently is, is in Mariupol. She is uh, in a part of town that's been evacuated because of heavy shelling. And uh, she's alone, without power. She is, she is there sort of lying in bed and she really relies on the mercy of her neighbors who so far have been managing to come to her every day. I just got word just, just minutes ago that uh, they were able to come to her today and uh, leave some um, food and water for her and uh, and you know, change her. She needs to be cleaned up since she's not mobile every day. And, um, but she, uh, they don't have power in the city, so I can no longer speak with her because her phone battery has died. Um, so we'll hope that uh, I will st- I'll be able to speak with her uh, you know, soon. I can't, I can't imagine what um, you and others must be going through. Um, many governments around the world have announced sanctions against uh, Russia. What do you feel foreign governments should be doing? I think the, uh, the way I see it, I think the way I'm witnessing it, and perhaps, perhaps, it's, uh, perhaps I'm not entirely correct, but it looks like, it already looks to me like World War III against Russia because Western governments, European Union, United Kingdom, United States, Canada, Japan, Switzerland, which has been neutral for centuries, are together announcing and or or actually imposing not just announcing unprecedented economic sanctions on russia must something like we've never seen before there have been sanctions against countries before like iran or north korea but nothing of this sort that i've seen it's not just uh, governments of course companies Many companies have taken on a wide range of actions, in some cases at great financial cost to themselves and the stake and their shareholders. What role do you think companies should play in this? I think that uh, companies that had exposure to Russia have probably been having continuous meetings about what should we do. And to the extent that uh, contact with Russia or, or, or economic connection to Russia is being severely disrupted because it's basically being isolated uh, from the financial flows and, and uh, there is no planes cannot fly in and out of Russia from, from the West 
uh, money cannot go in and out of Russia increasingly. Links with Russian employees are being disrupted. And obviously, as, as Russia plunges into this economic turmoil, increasingly employees of these companies will be spending a lot of their time standing in line for food rather than working in offices and doing some adding value. So companies are probably taking stock and looking at what are the scenarios that, that they want to pursue. Uh, a number of companies increasingly every day, major companies announce that they are shutting down their operations, that they are laying off their employees in Russia, that they are stopping production or, or uh, stopping to sell uh, their products there. I think uh, the answer is pretty clear. If, if the rest of the civilized world is doing that, you should probably think of doing that too. Uh, it is not something that you want to support. I mean, it, yes, it, you know, the employees that you've hired and the products that you're making and, uh, and the ties that you've built and perhaps the factories you've, you've built there and the investments that you've made are going to suffer. But think of it this way. What if you were build these ties and built your factories and hired employees in Nazi Germany in 1939? Would you want to continue? Because that's the analogy we're looking at. And uh, if you continue supporting that, many, many millions of people will die. Many of them innocent, ethnic cleansing, Holocaust, all of that. Is that what you want to do? I think the business decision here is clear. No, you don't want to do that. Under any circumstances, you don't want to do that because this money is just not the right way of approaching it. Andre, the invasion is really the culmination of uh, many years of aggression happening since, say, 2014. What's been less visible during this time is a lot of the sort of state-sponsored cyber attacks on Ukraine's infrastructure over the years. And I know you've developed um, a course on cybersecurity what lessons should companies and governments take about cybersecurity from what's been happening in Ukraine during this time? Uh, there's uh, been a lot of cybersecurity operations, some of them outright state-sponsored between Russia and Ukraine, and uh, some of them is uh, sort of more makeshift uh, as, as a number of people. I know are joining that. I know a number of, I know at least some IT specialists, Ukraine is a big sort of IT hub, um, who have joined the efforts on their own and organized um, organized attacks on, on their own using the resources that they have collectively without necessarily being 
being directed by uh, by any state to do that. Um, I'd say that um, the lessons right now are not entirely clear to me. I mean, we can call it there is a sort of cyber fog of war. I'm not entirely sure what's going on. I see I I see that the resources are being deployed. My understanding is also from talking to some IT engineers that they feel that they're dealing with um, perhaps the first and second waves of, of Russian cyber attacks. Um, they have an understanding. One of the questions that they're asking themselves, why hasn't Russia shut down mobile telecommunication networks around Ukraine? One possible answer is that their own troops are using that. So until they take over the towers and replace the equipment, they actually need to keep it running. Um, and that creates an environment in which Ukrainians know their, their telecommunication networks better than Russians do. So they're more effective there. And, and they're also deploying the resources on the scale that is unparalleled because that's all the resource that they have are going in that, in that direction. Um, but it, there is a, there's a bit of a fog of war. I'm not entirely sure what's going on. There will be lessons learned, uh, and we will have a, a better understanding of, of uh, what happened or what has been happening. But it's a very, very active, it's in a very active stage from what I understand. The course that you mentioned, Conrad, was probably uh, is probably rapidly becoming outdated. Um, it has the uh, it's more designed for companies of how to defend themselves or for company management of how to defend themselves against both private and state sponsored uh, cyber attacks. Uh, but I think that just like the geopolitical map is being redrawn right now, the cyber political, if you will, map is being redrawn as well as the resources are are being utilized, learning about each other. And, and uh, it, it's, it's a very rapid period of learning about each other as, as they engaged in very active state of, of war. Yeah, I, I can see that um, major companies will now have to think about cybersecurity because it's become clear that uh, in this sort of cyber warfare that goes on, uh, even when there's no visible signs, people, companies do get uh, attacked and they can be part of that sort of cyber geopolitical war as you... I think many people have been really impressed with is how even though there's, there is an invasion going on, major parts of Ukrainian government, economy, society... Um, are still functioning. Of course, there are disruptions, and you mentioned how um, in, in your mother's city there, there's no power. But things seem to, in, in large part, still are able to function. Um, how is Ukraine prepared for this such that they can do it? Ukraine, I, um, uh, I, I've been looking at Ukraine and what kind of... Um, government, if you will, or or um, governance structure is appropriate for Ukraine for quite some time. 
up up to this war. And Ukraine is is interesting in that it's a society with very strong horizontal ties, but with very poor vertical institutions. Up to very recently, most of the institutions that we're using were basically repainted remnants of various imperial structures. And they were sort of they, they were not independent institutions, they were just sort of channels for uh, various empires to channel resources out uh, of the uh, out of the territory. Uh, however, over the last several years, they've rebuilt a number of their institutions, most importantly, the central bank. The central bank is a fully functioning, very well-functioning institution. Over the last several years, they also rebuilt their military because of the ongoing conflict. The military is now being led by um, combat-hardened uh, generals with rather than people who are just sort of draw arrows on maps. Uh, they've rebuilt... Um, some other parts of the infrastructure and uh, the uh, elections that happened two years ago have also changed, have also introduced very different types of people into, uh, into the leadership of the country. I wouldn't say that these people were particularly well prepared uh, to deal with the issues that they uh, deal with now. But I think by taking a stance that they've taken, uh, they very rapidly gained legitimacy with the people at large. Uh, the president, whom you know is uh, is a former um, you know comedian, TV sort of comedian and and, and stand-up comedian. You know, many people said that you know he's completely unprepared to be a leader of a country of many, many millions of people. It was reasonably complex uh, economy and really complicated geopolitics. Having said that, uh, when he was offered uh, safe passage out of the country by the U.S., his answer was. My country needs weapons, not a safe passage for me. You say things like that. The country comes together around you. You can save yourself or you can stand and fight. And all these other things about what your past has been doesn't matter anymore because what matters is your action. At a time of need, you are there as a leader and People have united around this leadership. I would say the politics there is quite contentious and quite fractured. You don't see any of that. Uh, the pro-Russian politicians have either fled the country or um, tried to sort of change their change their rhetoric. But the uh, democratic uh, politicians have all united around their president. The president is, has received 73% of the popular vote. He is a legitimate leader of the country and represents its people. 
And it's very clear that that is the case because the people feel that they don't want to flee. They want to stand and fight. They want to send their women and children out, obviously, because you want to protect your future. And, uh, but the, the overall functioning of, of the government, I think, rests on the fact that it is considered fully legitimate by those whom it governs. Thank you, Andre, um, for speaking to us during this very difficult time for yourself. On behalf of all our listeners, I wish you, your family, and your country. That was Andre Kirienko, faculty member here at Cambridge Judge Business School. We experienced some technical difficulties when recording this, and I missed recording the last part of what Andre said. Usually, I would go back to the guest to ask him or her to re-record that segment, but as you can appreciate, Andre has more pressing things on his mind. However, I felt that what he said to me was really important, so I've taken the liberty of paraphrasing his remarks. Andre says this episode really brings forth the need for companies, for business school communities to really think about ESG in a much more concrete way. We come to business schools to learn about finance, strategy, marketing, and the usual suspects, but it's very important and clear now that ESG is vital. If businesses are to have a place and an impact on society. Thanks for listening. And I wanted to end off with some words from the Vice Chancellor of Cambridge University. He said that everyone here's thoughts are with all those Ukrainian citizens now in harm's way, as well as with those Russian citizens taking a brave stand against the war, often at great personal risk.